It was D. Martin Lloyd-Jones who said of the book of Romans, it is the Mount Everest of Scripture. This morning I want us to scale new heights with what might be for many of us a familiar sacred sentence. I invite you to draw your sword, turn to Romans chapter 6. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. This morning I want to read in your hearing Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, the understanding, the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon who said of this sentence, it is a Christian proverb, a golden sentence, a divine statement of truth worthy to be across the sky. This statement of Romans 6.23 is really a contrast of three couplets. There is a wage compared to a gift. There is sin juxtaposed to God. There is death on the opposite end of the spectrum as eternal life. This Christian proverb bears repeating, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul speaks of that word, wages. The word communicates compensation earned. It was James Montgomery Boyce who accurately stated that the word that Paul uses for wages communicates the provision, the compensation that the Roman government gave to Roman soldiers in exchange for their work. Literally, it is a food ration. Specifically, it is the fish ration. Because refrigeration was antiquated in the first century and not wanting any of the food to spoil, this particular wage was given as a daily distribution. There's more than one commentator who has said that when Paul uh, employs this term as the wages of sin, he's not just speaking of what is earned from the cumulative effect of all of our sin. No, it would be wise for us to realize that even our day-to-day -day sin carries a heavy price tag. That all of our sin is a wage that is earned. The wages of sin. We've spoken before about that word sin. It literally means to miss the mark. It's a word that Paul utilizes as he lifts out of the athletic arena. It's a word that was typically used in an archery contest when an athlete was told to nail the target on four consecutive bull's eyes with four consecutive arrows. If that athlete missed any of those targets, it was called a sin because he missed his mark. And by missing the mark, he would be disqualified from the competition. 
Paul has already stated, for all of us have sinned. For we all fall short of the glory of God. All of us have missed the mark. And our sin is repetitive. It is continuous. It is continual. We constantly miss God's standard of perfection. Now, theologically speaking, the word sin means a transgression against the law of God. It's a moral failure. It is an act of disobedience against the word and the will of God. The wage of sin. This statement in Romans 6.23 is really a summary statement of the preceding paragraph. Paul has been writing since Romans chapter 6 verse 15 all the way down to Romans chapter 6 verse 23. And he's been speaking about the fact that, that we are owned by our sin. We are indebted to our sin. We're we're obligated to our sin, for our sin is our master. In verses 15 and following, Paul says that all of us are slaves to someone. All of us are indebted. All of us are slaves and servants, bondservants to someone. Either we are a slave to our sin or we're a slave to our God. Those are the only two options. And Paul says, the way you know who owns you is simply ask the question, who do I obey? If I obey my sin by my action, then I, I, I reveal that my sin owns me and the, my sin is my master and I'm a slave to sin. But if I obey God and if I live for him by my choices, by my actions, by my words, by my activity, if I live for God and if I obey him, then that gives evidence that he is my master and I am his servant. We have only two options. 2,000 years have passed, but not a whole lot has changed. We are either slaves to our sin or we are slaves to our God. Paul's been speaking in nine verses about our slavery issue. All of us are bondservants. The word he consistently uses for servant or slave is the word doulos. It's a bondservant. And what he's saying is that we are bound to something or someone. We are bound either to our sin or we are bound to our God. It's one of the two. There are no other choices. I realize that when we begin to speak in the language of the apostle, when we begin to talk about slavery, it is a topic that causes more than a few of us to have a uh, repulsion inside of us. And I understand. Because when we approach this concept of slavery, we cannot help but to see it under the guise of American slavery of the 17th and 18th centuries. And so we think all slavery looks like that. And let me be very clear that throughout human history, there is uh, just an inordinate amount of cruel and unusual punishment when it comes to slavery. But not all slavery looked like what was experienced in the Americas of the 17th and 18th centuries. There are some significant, slight differences between uh, slavery in the first century of the Roman Empire versus slavery in the American context of the 17th and 18th centuries. Allow me to articulate a few of those differences. For starters, in the days of Paul, 25% of the population was classified as a slave. And in those days, slavery was not a race of people, but a class of people. Unlike America, in Rome, a person was not a slave just because of the color of their skin. 
So slavery in the first century was not seen as a particular race of people. No, it was a class of people. It was the working class, you and I would describe it. 25% of the population was regarded as a slave. And in the first century, not all slavery was a lifetime sentence. Some of it was, but not all of it. In fact, there are many instances when someone had a debt they could not pay, they would enslave themselves to the one they owed money. And for a particular period of time, they would work for that individual and they would pay off the debt. And once the debt was paid and satisfied, they would no longer be a slave, a bondservant. And then, in the first century, there are some instances when people would voluntarily become slaves. It was Clement, the first century Roman church father, who said there were many Christians who voluntarily became slaves. They took the money received and they used it to buy food for others. There are some situations in the first century where there was a voluntary slavery and, and, and it, was, it was a choice that was made and the person who was the slave made that choice. This is the analogy that Paul has in mind. He says that either you will choose to be a slave to your sin or you'll be a slave to your God. It's one of the two choices. You will be a bondservant. You'll be owned. You will be bound by something or someone. And the way you can always tell it is just take an inventory of your life. Who do you obey? Do you obey your sin in whatever form that takes? Or do you obey your Savior as he's given you his word and instruction for the wages of sin, if you're bound to sin, is death. The ultimate bondage that you have to sin, if you don't do anything about it, if nothing's done for you, then it will result in your demise. For the wages of sin is death. It was John Piper who said, we sin to seek some pleasure only to discover that it leaves life empty again and again and again. Can I get a hearty amen from anybody in the crowd? Is there anybody that can give the same testimony as John Piper, who says, you know, my sin, it promises freedom only to land me enslaved. It promises that I will be satisfied. It promises that I will be free. And I sin and you sin, we all sin in the hopes of seeking some pleasure only to discover that life is left empty again and again and again. I wonder, friend, when will we learn? When will we learn that our sin will not satisfy? It will not give freedom. It will not deliver on the false promises that it presents to you. So John Piper's exactly right, that we sin as somehow seeking pleasure only to discover that at the end of the day, life is empty again and again and again. Not only is life empty, but Paul says life is dead, for the wages of sin is death. The earnings of your disobedience is destruction. When you hear the phrase, the wages of sin is death, it ought to harken your mind back to Genesis chapter 2. It's there where God said to our first parent, Adam, as he placed him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and take care of it, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. 
When the serpent tempted our first parents, Adam and Eve, his mode of operation was to call into question the reliability of the word of God. Centuries have passed. The devil still does the same thing. He still tries to slither into your life and his primary mode of operation is to question your reliability and sufficiency in the scripture. You will not surely die, he chided. For if you eat of it, God knows that your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You will be God. You will be your own God. You'll be the one who calls the shot. You talk about freedom. That's freedom. If you're the God of your universe, if you're the one who gets to declare what's in bounds and out of bounds, if you're the one who gets to call the shots, that's freedom. And the devil said to Adam and Eve, God is holding out on you. He doesn't want you to be free. You will not surely die. When Adam and Eve saw that the Fruit was desirable. They took some and they ate it. One of the great surprises of the biblical narrative is that when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, they did not immediately physically drop dead. Has that shocked any of you? I mean, when the original authors, when they write this, when the original readers read in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and following, I mean, one of the great takeaways is how are Adam and Eve still alive? I mean, God said, if you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. And they ate the fruit and they're still breathing. How is that possible? One of the great early surprises of the biblical narrative is that Adam and Eve are still alive even after they eat the forbidden fruit. How do you explain that? Well, by their actions, they, they did usher in physical death. Death became an inevitability. Death became unavoidable, not just for them, but all humanity and all creation. But don't ever forget that physical death is a mere symbol of a death that is far more serious that sin brings. The death that is far more serious that sin brings is a spiritual death. And I contend that at the moment of their disobedience, they experienced spiritual death. The Bible calls this the second death. All of us will experience the first death when we stop breathing this terrestrial air But those of us that are in Christ, we will not experience a second death. But anyone who is not a slave of Jesus, but a slave to their sin, they will experience spiritual death. They will be forever separated from God and all of his goodness. So Adam and Eve, yeah, they kept walking and talking, but they were living in the land of the dying. And the reality is, here we are, all these millennia later, And we're doing the same thing. We are living and breathing dead people. We are walking and talking in the land of the dying. Everything around us is dying. Our friends are dying. Our family members are dying. Our loved ones are dying. Our classmates are dying. Our hopes and our dreams are dying. Our plants are dying. Our trees are dying. Our dogs are dying. Our fish are dying. Everything is dying. Why? Because we live in a land of the dying. For the wages of sin is death. 
Death is not just physical. Physical death is a mere symbol of something that is far more serious that our sin brings, which is spiritual death. For the wages of sin is death. If you continue to pursue down this path, allowing your sin to be your master, the only result will be your death, your demise, and you have no one to blame but yourself. For the wages of sin is death. But, that's a powerful word. It's the strongest contrast possible. Paul uses the word that it's the strongest word possible. It's as if he's doing an about face. For the wages of sin is death. But, I've told you before that this, this is a huge but. This is a big but. And I love the big buts of the Bible and you do too. Because there's sometimes in the Bible where God does something, where he interjects and it's a game changer. He changes everything. Joseph said, you intended it for harm, but God intended it for good. David said, weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And Paul elsewhere says that though we are dead in our sin, but God made us alive in Christ Jesus. Here in Romans 6.23 is the biggest but of the Bible. You have it right there in front of you. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the biggest contrast imaginable. It was B.B. Warfield who said the greatest term in the Christian vocabulary is redemption. It's the greatest term. It's the sweetest term. Redemption, theologically speaking, is the purchase power of Christ where he has paid and bought the sinner out of slavery to sin. It's the purchase power of Christ where God in Jesus has paid the sin debt he didn't know because you have a sin debt that you can't pay and by that purchase he has bought you so that you are no longer a slave to sin. And how did God do this? By sending Jesus as a substitutionary atonement for our sin. His blood covers all of our sin, past, present, and future. The apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 will speak of the precious blood of the Lamb of God. It's that precious blood that covers over all of your sin. The hymn writer asked the question, what can wash away my sin? The answer, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fountain, no. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. All of that is found in the three-lettered word, but. But God has given us a free gift in Jesus Christ. We are dead in our sin, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift. The word gift is the Greek word charisma. It means a grace gift. God has given us his charisma. God has given us his grace. God has given us a gift 
It's juxtaposed, it's opposite, it's on the other side of the spectrum as a wage. It's not something that we earn, it's something that we receive. God has given us a gift. Romans chapter 6 begins with grace, it ends with grace. In the middle there's grace. There is God's grace all over Romans chapter 6. For in verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that more grace may abound? And the answer is absolutely not. Why? Because we die to sin. Our sin is dead to us. We're alive to God in Christ Jesus. That in in Jesus at Calvary's cross, your sin was nailed. Jesus put it to death. He escorted it to the grave. And on the third day, Jesus got up and he turned and said to your sin, stay there. Friend, anytime your sin rears its ugly head in your life, you've got to preach the same sermon that Jesus preached. You just say to your sin, stay there. You're dead to me. I'm alive to God. Why? Because of the grace of our Lord Jesus. Because of God's charisma. Because of his grace. In the middle of the chapter, verse 15, since we are not under law but under grace, should we sin more? And once again, the answer is by no means absolutely not. May it never be. Why? Because you now have a new master. You're not owned by your sin, you're owned by your Savior. You have a different master, you have a different one you're obeying. You have a different one that's calling the shots. Now friend, if if your master was still your sin, then you would keep on sinning. But your master is Jesus, and Jesus has set you free. He has liberated you, he is the new taskmaster. He owns you, he is the one who's come to uh, lead your life and live through your life. So Jesus is the one who's in charge. We say no to sin. Because of God's grace and because Christ is now our master. It ends, chapter 6, by talking about this grace gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So what is this gift? What is this charisma that God gives? Well, it was St. Augustine who said before conversion, you cannot not sin Before conversion, you cannot not sin. But once you're converted to Christ, you have the power to obey. That's a gift, right? It's a gift that doesn't originate with you. It's a gift that's been given to you by God. It's it's, it's God who has converted your heart unto him. It is God who has transformed you. Before Jesus resided in your life, before Jesus is the master of your life, you cannot not sin, according to St. Augustine. But once Jesus becomes Lord and master, you have the power to obey. Frank Thielman, in his commentary on Romans, just simply said it this way, slavery to God is real freedom. Slavery to God is freedom. Now, let's just be honest, that sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? But the Bible is stuffed with oxymorons that are orthodox. They're apparent contradictions that are deep convictions of our faith. Elsewhere in the Bible, we are told, if you're going to be first, you've got to be last. If you're going to be great, you've got to be least. If you want to live, you must die to yourself. If you want to save life, you've got to lose it. Oxymorons. Apparent contradictions. Yet these contradictions are deep convictions of our faith. That if you want to be free, slavery to God is real freedom. 
Slavery to God, where he is your master, where Jesus owns you, where you're property of the king. So you say to him, I will go where you want me to go, and I will speak what you want me to speak. I will think how you want me to think. I'll believe what you tell me to believe. I will do what you ask me to do. Paul says this is the analogy. This is a human analogy, but you have shifted masters. Your master is no longer your sin. Your master is now God in Christ. This is the gift. This gift is of God. It can also be translated, it's from God. In other words, this gift, this conversion, this eternal life, it originates in God. It does not originate in you. It originates in God. And what God is Paul talking about? Oh, he's talking about the God who spoke the world into existence. He's talking about the God who said, let there be light, and light came running at 186,000 miles per second. He is talking about the God who flung the stars into space, taught the sun how to shine, tilted the earth 23 degrees on its axis. He's talking about the God who provided the ram for Abraham, provided the fish for Jonah, tore down the walls of Jericho. He's talking about the God who sent his son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, stepped out of heaven, stepped into earth. And this is the God who nailed Jesus to the cross, cast him into a borrowed tomb, and on the third day raised him from the dead. This is the God that Paul is talking about. And it's this God who's given you an amazing gift. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God. Now, why would God give you a gift? Every young child knows the answer to that question. For the young child can articulate that mom and dad, grandparents, they give gifts simply because they love me. And if it's true, that sinful people like moms and dads and grandma and grandpa can give good gifts, how much more your Father in heaven? So why would God give you the good gift of eternal life? Simply because he loves you. I'll go one step further. Not only does he love you, but the reason he gives you the gift is because he can. He has the ability to do it. We don't live in a doomed fate that says just because we have sinned, we, if we just commit one sin, then we are forever doomed and nothing can be done about it. For the God who has the authority and the power and the right to say the wages of sin is death, this same God has the right, the power, and the authority to say that the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. This God, who, who is sovereign over the entire process, can make the declaration that the ways of sin is death. He can also make the declaration that those who believe in him through the accomplished work of Jesus Christ will be saved. It's not only that God loves you, but he has the capacity to give you eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you go back just two verses prior to verse 23, you will hear the Apostle Paul ask a great question, what benefit do you reap from the things that you're now ashamed of? J.B. Phillips said, what benefit do you reap from the things that now cause you to blush? In other words, what do you get out of your sin? What benefit do you reap 
from the shameful sin that now causes you to blush. And oh, my friend, woe to us if our shameful sin doesn't cause us to blush. If somehow we as God's people have forgotten how to blush, may God have mercy on our souls. Because when I look back, and hopefully when you look back, over where you have been and what you have done, those shameful deeds cause you to blush. Paul asked the question, what benefit did you gain from the things that now cause you to blush? The answer, death. You gain nothing but death. But now, Paul writes, but now you have been set free. Now you're a slave of God. Now you reap the benefit of holiness. That's the word sanctification. You reap the benefit of holiness, sanctification, that is eternal life. Much has been spoken about eternal life. The word eternal is a word that means it has no beginning and it has no end. Like God, it is forever. The Greek word life is the word zoe. There are a couple of different Greek words to communicate life. This particular word zoe communicates a supernatural life that belongs to God in Christ. In other words, it's a life that can only come from above. It's a life that only God can give. It's a life that consists of more than just eking out existence. It's a life that is more than just breathing and living and moving and walking and working. This is a life that only God can give. It's a supernatural life that is bound and found in God through Jesus Christ. You remember what Jesus said in the high priestly prayer of John chapter 17? Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life. To know that there is one true God. And if you know that there's one true God, by default, you have to also know Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And Jesus says, this is eternal life. In 1 John chapter 5, uh, the disciple just simply puts the cookies on the bottom shelf when he says, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. That word for life is this word zoe. It's a supernatural life. It belongs to God. Only God can give it. And it's bound and found in Jesus Christ. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. The only way you receive this eternal life is through Jesus Christ our Lord. We said before that Christ is not the last name of Jesus as if he was born to Mr. and Mrs. Christ. No, Christ is not his name, it's his title. This is who he is. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the Savior. Jesus Christ. And Paul says he is our Lord. I realize there are many in the church today and throughout the ages who have made a great distinction between Jesus being Savior of your life and Jesus being Lord of your life. And I understand the distinction. You probably do too. The person who acknowledges Jesus' Savior comes to Christ and says, please forgive me of my sin. Save my soul. The one who comes to Jesus as Lord says, you are in charge. You are my master. Remember, this is a summary statement of the entire paragraph where Paul's been saying, you're going to be a slave either to your sin or to your God. And if you're a slave to God, it is to Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's the one calling the shots. I understand the discrepancy. I understand the distinction between Savior and Lord. But I fear that far too many of us make too much of a distinction between the two. Because if Jesus is Savior, 
By default, he has to be your Lord. Let me say it another way. If Jesus ain't your Lord, he ain't your Savior. You can't go to Jesus and just get merely the forgiveness of sins. If you truly go to Jesus, if you truly call on his name, if you truly ask him to be the master of your life, if you truly say, I'm going to be your bondservant, your slave, you are saying to Jesus, not only do you save me from my sin, but you are my Lord and my Savior. You're the one who's calling the shots. Because the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is a Christian proverb. This is a golden sentence. It's a divine statement of truth worthy to be written across the sky. I contend this morning it's also worthy to be written across your heart. It's worthy to be written across your relationships. It's worthy to be written across your marriage. It's worthy to be written across your finances. It's worthy to be written across every ledger of your life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Friend, I want you to listen to me. No one under the sound of my voice is so good that they don't need eternal life. And nobody on the sound of my voice is so bad that they can't receive eternal life. This eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord is made available to all, to any who will believe. All we have to do is admit to God that we're a sinner. Believe that Jesus is the God-man who came and died on the cross for our sins, past, present, and future. He was placed into a grave on the third day. He was raised from the dead. And we confess unto him that he is Lord. A person that admits that they're a sinner, believes in Christ and confesses him as Lord is one who goes from death unto life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. If there's somebody listening to my voice today who's never trusted Jesus, today can be the day of salvation. Is there anyone in need of salvation? Today, right now, receive it by faith. Is there anybody, any Christian here in need of forgiveness? Maybe it's a sin that so easily entangles you. Today, right now, receive it by faith. Is there anybody here in need of the grace of God? Anybody who just need a little bit of God charisma in their life? Today, receive it by faith. May your prayer be this song. All to Jesus I surrender. And all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him and in his presence I'll daily live. So I surrender it all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender it all. Why do I pray that? Why do I say that? Because in Romans 6.23 we find a Christian proverb, a golden sentence, a divine statement of truth worthy to be written across the sky. For the wages of my sin is my death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ my Lord. This statement is not just true for me. This statement is true for anyone who will believe. 
Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this moment of invitation. If there's one listening to my voice who does not know you as Savior, I pray that today is the day of salvation. If there's a believer here who's in need of your goodness, your grace, your charisma, your forgiveness, let them receive it today. If there's somebody here who needs to make a decision to join this church, let it be done today. If there's somebody who needs to come and pray, let it be today. We ask for you to move right now, for us to respond in obedience. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.